Amen. So Matthew chapter 27, we pick up the story in verse 62. Matthew chapter 27, verse 62. Matthew writes for us, On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he's risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting a guard. Chapter 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angels answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus meant them, saying, Rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So last week we looked at the burial of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus prepared Jesus' body according to uh, the Jewish traditions. And they placed Jesus' body in Joseph's personal tomb. And after all of that, they rolled a large stone uh, in front of the entrance. And last week in our study, we read Matthew 27, verse 61. And you may have noticed that I uh, didn't comment on it. It happens to be an important detail. And we'll talk about it a little later on uh, in our study this morning. So stay tuned. But... Um, the background for our study this morning is basically this. Jesus is dead. He's been uh, laid in the tomb. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus have wrapped Jesus' body in clean white linen and uh, applied about 100 pounds of spices to his body. And a large stone was rolled in front of the entrance of the tomb in order to keep wild animals and people out. And now we see in the verses that we're looking at this morning, none of that was enough for the Jewish religious leaders. In verse 62, we read, On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate. Jesus had now been dead a full day. He's been in the tomb. His body is laid in the tomb for an entire night. But the religious leaders, they come to Pilate in a little bit of a panic, right? They went to bed last night just as happy as they could be. Their plan to have Jesus crucified, you'd think that in their minds, for them, uh, you know, it, it, it would all be over. Mission accomplished, right? You know, their intent was to get rid of Jesus. And you'd think that, um, you know, they wouldn't be, they would just be as happy as a lark right now. Jesus could no longer be a threat to their money-making machine that they turned religion into. Jesus is no longer a threat to their power and authority. So you would have thought that they would have gone to sleep that night with confidence, yet they wake up the next day with Jesus on, on their mind. He's still troubling them. They can't shake this feeling that even though they've killed him and put him in the grave, they can't shake this feeling that somehow... You know, they've lost the war, right? Even in light of their apparent victory, 
They have this unshakable sense that the cross didn't solve their problems, but instead, in their minds, it may have created an even bigger problem for them. And now they're concerned about the possibility of a resurrection. And that's a very legitimate concern. Jesus had performed a a number of resurrections. Jairus' daughter, you know, uh, you'll remember that Jairus was a ruler of the synagogue. So you know that the Jewish religious leaders uh, were very aware of the facts regarding uh, Jesus raising Jairus' daughter from the dead. Also, Jesus raised the widow of Nain's son. Right? He did that even during the uh, funeral procession. And of course, uh, you'll remember Lazarus. Each of these resurrections gives evidence to Jesus and his power over death. Right? Each of them give credence uh, to his claims that after his death, he would rise again on the third day. He repeatedly spoke of his resurrection to his disciples. In Matthew 16, 21, Matthew tells us, from that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Every time Jesus spoke of his death, he always spoke about his resurrection. And he spoke it publicly also, right? Matthew 12, 38 through 40 uh, says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign uh, will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the interesting thing here with this verse is, Actually, the idea that's being communicated here in the Greek is that it is three days and three nights only. That's it. And the religious leaders knew that Jesus was able to perform great works while he was alive, but now they're actually worried that he'll do the greatest work of all, proving he is who he claimed to be, right? fulfilling the words of King David who wrote concerning the Messiah in Psalm 16:10 saying for you speaking of God the Father will not leave my soul in Sheol nor will you allow your holy one speaking of the Messiah to see corruption remember when Nicodemus came to Jesus in John chapter 3 in John chapter 3 verse 2 he said rabbi we know that you're a teacher come from God. For no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with them. Now, you need to understand, Nicodemus wasn't just speaking for for himself, right? He was speaking for all the Jewish religious leaders. Jesus said that he was the teacher of Israel. And now the Jewish religious leaders are afraid. Last night, they went to bed just as happy as a clam, but now they're in damage control, right? So they come up with this plan not to allow Jesus' resurrection to occur. But once again, what they got to do is they, they need Pilate's help, right? So they remind Pilate what it was that Jesus said in verse 63, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise. I mean, their hatred for Jesus is so great. I mean, it's just off the charts, right? They can't even refer to him by name. They call him with just extreme contempt in in their heart. They call him that deceiver. That deceiver said, after three days, I will rise. And in verse 64, they offer Pilate the solution to the problem, as well as the consequences for inaction. Verse 64 says, Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He's risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Now, 
their request is very specific. They, they want to keep the disciples uh, from stealing uh, the body of Jesus away at night and then fill human history with the story of his resurrection. They say if that were to happen, that deception would be worse than his claim to be the Son of God. But I want you to notice in verse 63 and in 64, we're told absolute truth. Not from the mouths of his friends, from the friends of Jesus, but from the mouths of his enemies, that in fact, Jesus died upon the cross. And, and that's important to note because it debunks an idea, you know, that has enough backing behind it that it's referred to as a theory. And that theory is known as the swoon theory. Maybe you've heard of it, maybe you haven't, but it was an idea that came around many years ago and it just circulated through the colleges like wildfire some years ago that in fact, you know, the theory puts forth that Jesus didn't actually die upon the cross. You see, what happened was he just kind of swooned. He just kind of fainted. And then when they put him in the tomb, you know, the coolness of the tomb, that worked to revive Jesus. It wasn't a miracle. It just was coincidence. But Jesus' enemies twice, once in verse 63 and once in verse 64, declare Jesus to be dead. Jesus' enemies debunk the idea which attempts to dismiss the resurrection. You know, it's as if God uh, knew ahead of time and anticipated that this crazy theory uh, was coming, so he debunks it before it even has a chance to come about, right? It's like the people that put forth these crazy ideas have never read the Bible. It always amazes me, personally, it always amazes me to consider what utter nonsense people are willing to swallow instead of just believing in who Jesus proved himself to be. Like Paul said, professing to be wise, they become as fools. You know, it's utterly ridiculous on the part of the religious leaders to even think that the disciples of Jesus uh, would be capable of carrying out some type of plan or scheme of stealing Jesus's body away uh, at night. I mean, it's completely laughable. The Roman soldier was an incredibly disciplined fighter. He was well-trained and he was combat-hardened. In the book, Life in the Roman World of Nero and St. Paul, the author T.G. Tucker says, and I quote, the Roman guard unit is probably one of the greatest offensive and defensive fighting units ever conceived. I mean, that's quite a statement in and of itself right there. He goes on to say, a Roman unit was a four to 16 man security force. Each man was trained to protect six feet of ground. The 16 men in a square of four on each side was trained to be able to protect 36 yards against an entire battalion and hold it. In regards to securing and protecting something like the tomb of Jesus, T.G. Tucker says, normally what they would do would be to place four men in immediately in front of what they were to protect, with the other 12 men sleeping in a semicircle with their heads pointing inward. Every four hours, another unit of four would awaken, and those who uh, had been awake, went to sleep. And they would rotate like this around the clock to steal uh, what these soldiers were protecting, right? A thief would have to, first of all, walk across, uh, you know, those who were sleeping and then overpower these four disciplined, combat-hardened soldiers who were on guard. And T.G. Tucker continues and says, if a Roman guard was to fall asleep on duty, the penalty was death, not only for him, but the entire unit. One way death would be carried out was by fire. The entire unit would be stripped, then they would be burned alive in a fire, started with their own garments. The fear of the wrath of their superiors and the death penalty provided flawless 
attention to duty, especially in the night watches. You know, all these guards uh, that the chief priests and the Pharisees are requesting from, from Pilate are actually the praetorian guards. And the praetorian guards, they were the personal bodyguards of the governor. So they were the elite forces of the Roman army. To think that the disciples, you know, this uh, little ragtag bunch of, of fishermen and, and zealots could ever overcome or overpower these guards, I mean, it's just ridiculous, totally ridiculous. And that's the exact reason that these Jewish leaders request these particular guards, you know, in order to ensure that nothing like this could or ever would happen. You know, but the truth be told, the last thing that's on the disciples' minds right now is uh, stealing Jesus' body. They're all in hiding for fear of their own lives, right? In verse 65, Matthew continues, Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. Now, if you're reading the NIV this morning, you see that the NIV translates what Pilate says as take a guard, okay? And as we've noted many times in our study uh, through Matthew's gospel, Pilate and the religious leaders, they weren't actually on, um, you know, speaking terms. They weren't friends, right? They had a deep dislike for each other. Pilate not only uh, gives them a guard, he makes the entire Roman garrison that's stationed in Jerusalem at the time, he makes them available to them. He, he tells them, hey, you know what? Take a guard. Not just two, not just four. He basically tells them, take what you need. And then he tells them, go your way. In the Greek, it's a single word implying, get out of here. I'm done with you. Okay? Again, the NIV translates this verse. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. He knew, Pilate knew that the Jewish people delivered Jesus up to him out of envy. Right? Every time Pilate declared that he found no fault in Jesus and tried to release him, uh, the Jewish religious leaders would shout him down. And Pilate's fed up with him now at this point. And he's saying, I don't want to see you guys here anymore. You know what? Uh, you see to it. And whatever happens from here on out, it's on you. You know, on the third day after Jesus' death, you won't be able to blame me. You won't be able to blame his disciples or anyone else for that matter. Whatever happens, it's all on you now. And in verse 66, we read that they went out and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone, setting a guard. You know, the seal that's being spoken of here, the seal that they used was a simple cord set in wax. You know, and it bore the official seal of Rome. And to break that seal without authority, it meant your death. And personally, I think it's a little funny. In Psalms 2, verses 1 and 2, we read, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set, them, set uh, themselves uh, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then in verse 4, it continues saying, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh, and the Lord shall hold them in derision. I mean, these leaders, in their attempt to keep Jesus from raising from the dead, set a seal on the tomb. Uh, a little seal made out of string and wax. <laughs> I mean, to me, I just think it's funny. After all, they knew Jesus to do. I mean, Jesus healed the sick. He cast out demons. He fed the multitudes. He cleansed the lepers. He gave sight to the blind. He did all this and more right in front of the eyes of the Jewish religious leaders. And when they came to rest Jesus in the garden, right, Jesus, he spoke the words, I am, and they all fell backwards down to the ground, right? What did they think Jesus would do when he saw that seal? I mean, did they think that he would say to himself, oh my goodness, you know, a Roman seal, whatever shall I do? No, you know, people will plot and scheme 
all kinds of crazy things, right? But it won't stop God from doing what God is going to do. Impossible situations, humanly speaking, like a seal on a tomb with an elite fighting force guarding that tomb isn't going to stop God, right? In fact, he uses their actions to prove the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord because there's no other explanation than he actually rose from the dead. Take a quick look down now in Matthew 28. And we'll read verses 11 through 15. It says, Now while they were going, behold, some of the guards came into the city and reported to the chief priest all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed, and this saying is commonly reported among the Jews unto this day. The guards were trained to defend their ground against a battalion, right? You can rest assured that the disciples didn't overpower these guards. And if these guards did actually fall asleep, how did they know it was the disciples that stole the body of Jesus away? I mean, it just doesn't make sense if you're a thinking person. You try to understand this. It just doesn't make sense. The Jewish religious leaders set an impenetrable force at the tomb. No one is getting into that tomb, right? It's just another proof that no one took Jesus' body. The very plans of man are often used by God for his purposes, proving only one possibility. God, uh, Jesus is risen, right? He is most assuredly alive. I love uh, Psalm 76 that says, surely the wrath of men shall praise you. God very frequently uses the schemes of man, the plans of man to accomplish his purposes. And in this case, to verify the prophetic events of the resurrection. Well, again, Matthew 28, uh, pick it up at verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week uh, began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Marys came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. So it's Sunday. It's the first day of the week. It's Sunday. It's the first day of the week after the Passover, which, by the way, makes it the first day. It's the first morning of the Feast of first fruits. Okay? The stone is rolled back, not to let Jesus out. Don't think that for a moment. Jesus is already gone. Right? The Bible tells us that he's been in Abraham's bosom, which is that part of <clears throat> hell or the grave that is been the holding place for the righteous dead. Excuse me. <clears throat> Jesus has been there with the righteous dead in Abraham's bosom, having a three-day retreat. For the last three days, he's been preaching the word of God, uh, proving from the scriptures that he is the promised, the long-awaited for Messiah, the very one that the righteous dead have been looking for. And then Jesus led them away to heaven. Ephesians 4, verses 8 through 10 uh, says, Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. You know, the stone was rolled away not to let Jesus out, but to let the women and later on the disciples in uh, to witness his resurrection. And the angel sat there on the stone as a symbol of victory. I mean, don't you just love it? Uh, the stone and the seal that's intended to keep people out becomes a seat for this angel to just take a break on. He's just kicking back. 
And in verse 3, it says, His countenance, speaking of the angel, was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Well, I guess so. Just imagine. Try, uh, just try to imagine what it must have been like to see these guys shining as bright as lightning. I mean, it must have been something else. Verse 5, But the angel answered and said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, you know, the followers of Jesus never expected him to raise from the dead. Do you know that? They never expected Jesus to raise from the dead. Mark 16, verse 1, tells us, right? Now, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices that they might come and anoint him. It's the third day. And they were expecting to go to the tomb and anoint Jesus' dead body, right? In Luke's gospel, Luke tells us of an encounter that two of the disciples had with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And you remember the story, right? Jesus comes upon these two disciples uh, that are walking to Emmaus the day of Jesus' resurrection, right? Jesus overhears their conversation and he asks them, hey, what are you guys talking about? And why are you so sad? And they reply to him, are you a stranger in town? Right? You don't know the things that have happened in these past few days? And Jesus says, what happened? And they go on to tell him, and they go on to tell Jesus about his crucifixion. I mean, that, that cracks me up too. I mean, these guys are actually telling Jesus what happened to him, you know? And then after that, it was, oh, you should have been there after that. But then in Luke 24, verse 21. But we were hoping, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus say, but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Right? They were hoping. That's past tense. Right? They never really believed that Jesus was going to raise from the dead. We also read in Luke's gospel after Mary Magdalene, Joanna, uh, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them saw Jesus resurrected and alive. They ran and told the apostles. And in Luke 24, 11, Luke tells us that the apostles thought what the ladies were saying seemed to them like idle tales. And they did not believe them. Let me ask you a question this morning. Does the promises of God seem to you like idle tales? Right? Do you have a real expectation that he will fulfill his every word concerning you? Yeah. His, that his thoughts regarding you are good thoughts, thoughts for a future and a hope. You know that God's working in your life to conform you into the image of his son, that no weapon formed against you is going to prosper, that he'll never leave you or forsake you that he's the God that hears prayers and answers prayers and his eyes are always on you. And not only is he willing to do exceedingly abundantly above anything you ask or think he's able to, and he's going to bring those limitless resources to bear in your life. Do you believe that if you're seeking his kingdom first, he's going to provide for you all that you need? You know, maybe he spoke a promise to you personally years ago. Have you lost heart? Have you lost heart? You know, the truth of the matter is that we will always find it will come to pass just as he has said, right? For all the promises of God in him, in Christ Jesus our Lord, are yes and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. That's 2 Corinthians 1, 20. Keep your finger here in, in Matthew Okay, and let's turn over to Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 24. In Luke chapter 24, we have Luke's account of the events which occurred on the morning of Jesus' resurrection. Luke 24, verse 4, and eight, 4 through 8 is what we'll read. And verse 4, it says, And it happened as they, referring to the women who came that morning to Jesus' tomb, it happened as they were greatly 
perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Now, just a side note, this is where people who want to find fault with the Bible will say, see, it's just another contradiction, right? In Matthew's gospel, uh, Matthew says that there's just one angel. But here in Luke's gospel, he says that there's two angels. See, you know what? You can't trust the Bible because it's full of contradiction. Well, is that true? Is the Bible full of contradictions? How do you answer that, that objection? Well, first you answer by saying, oh, it's not a contradiction at all. That's not true, right? Luke tells us there were two angels, while Matthew just focuses in on the one angel that spoke to the women, right? It's the same events. Luke's given us uh, all the details because he's very detail-orientated, where Matthew is just uh, reporting the important aspects of the story. So again, Luke 24, uh, verse 4. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the ground, they said to them, the angels say to the ladies at the tomb who came to anoint uh, the Lord's body with spices, they said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? I mean, the angels seem to be a little bit confused right here, right? You know, the ladies are they're looking for Jesus, and they say, why do you seek the living among the dead? Literally in the Greek, the translation should be uh, translated this way. Why do you seek the living one among the dead? And the angel continues to say, again, a little bit confused, he's not here, but he's risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again? And it was right then that they remembered his words. And they believed. Again, they never really expected Jesus to raise from the dead. But God's word will never fail. You can trust it even when it seems beyond the realm of possibility. God's word is never going to come back void. Now flip back over to Matthew 28, and we'll continue. Verse 6. The angel says, he's not here, for he is risen. As he said, come see the place where the Lord lay and go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And indeed, he's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I've told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his uh, disciples word. You know, I have no idea what that must have looked like. Running from the tomb with fear and great joy. I mean, are they they're screaming and they're laughing at the same time? I don't know, right? Verse 9, And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus meant them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. I want you to notice Jesus' one-word commentary in verse 9, regarding his resurrection. Rejoice. Rejoice. Jesus knows that there's something about his resurrection that should cause each of us to rejoice. I think if you were to ask the average Christian about salvation, they, you know, they, of course, would speak about the cross. They would talk about Jesus' blood being shed for our sins. They would tell you about his substitutionary a sacrifice, substitutionary atonement. Of course, they would tell you, you know, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. But I think if you were to ask the average Christian today, what's the importance about the resurrection? Again, I'm talking about the average Christian today, not any of us here at Calvary Chapel Truckee. But the average Christian today may have some difficulty telling you why the resurrection is important why it's a reason to rejoice. So I just want to take the next few minutes and give you some of the reasons found in Scripture if you're taking note. Um, the first reason, declare, uh, reason the resurrection uh, is a reason to rejoice is because the resurrection declares that Jesus is the Son of God, just as he claimed. 
it proves that G, uh, proves that the claim of Jesus uh, being divine is true, right? He claimed to be equal with the Father and that the Father would raise him uh, from the dead on the third day. And if that claim was not true, then the Father would have never raised him up. The Father would have left him dead right there in the grave. But Romans 1.4 says, speaking of Jesus, that he is declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Second reason that the resurrection gives us, um, you know, cause to rejoice is because it reveals Jesus is the promised Messiah. Throughout the Old Testament, God spoke through the prophets that the Messiah would come into the world and that he would die and be buried and raised again the third day. Probably the the most well-known passage of Scripture that foretells the death of the Messiah would be Isaiah 53. And we read earlier Psalm 1610, which predicts the Messiah would die, but his body uh, would not stay in the grave uh, long enough to see corruption. Now, the third reason the resurrection gives us reason to rejoice, uh, because it reveals that man can be justified by simple faith in Jesus. The word justified means not guilty, right? The Bible teaches that we are justified, 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 we're declared not guilty by God when we place our faith in Jesus. In God's eyes, to be justified means just as if I'd never sinned, right? But (laughs) I have sinned, Gary. Yeah, me too. We're all sinners, right? But the Bible teaches that when we place our faith in Christ, he takes away our sins and gives us his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Romans 4.25, speaking of Jesus, says, Who was delivered for our offenses, and was raised again for our justification. Amen. Speaking of this justification and the righteousness imparted to us through faith in Jesus Christ, Paul writes in Romans 3.26 to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We're forgiven of our sins and God is just in justifying us as a result of us placing our faith in Jesus Christ. But how can we know for sure that we are forgiven? The answer is because of the resurrection, right? The resurrection proves that Jesus was an acceptable sacrifice uh, for sin. The fourth uh, reason we have to rejoice in the resurrection of Jesus is because the faith we place in him is not in vain. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14, 1 Corinthians 15, 14. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and and your faith is also empty. And then he finishes up his argument in that section by saying 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. If Jesus wasn't resurrected, His words in his teaching couldn't be trusted. But because he is resurrected, he can be trusted. And now unbelief is not acceptable. Right? Any teaching or belief contrary to the historical evidence, contrary to the scriptural evidence, contrary to eyewitness accounts, and by the way, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 that more than 500 people saw Jesus uh, at once after his resurrection. And Paul went on to challenge anyone who would dare not to believe in the resurrection to go and talk to any one of those 500 people to discuss what they saw, right? That they saw him uh, personally. Jesus' bodily resurrection is indisputable. But any teaching or belief that is contrary to the testimony of literally millions upon millions of people who have placed their faith in Jesus. Any teaching or belief that's contrary to the resurrection in light of all the evidence 
Well, it's actually, that's what's actually empty and in vain. You know, there's a belief that the ladies went to the wrong tomb. It's utterly ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, the reason that it's ridiculous is, uh, look down at Matthew 27, 61. It's the verse I said we would get to, right? That I skipped over last week. It says, and Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. They were there. They saw where the tomb was. They saw where their beloved Jesus was laid to rest. There's no way they're going to forget uh, its location. Certainly not in just a, uh, in a few days, right? It's ridiculous. And belief in that teaching, that is certainly empty and in vain. It's empty and in vain to believe the story that the guards slept while the disciples stole away the body of Jesus. Like we said, if they were awake, no one's going to get that body. No one. And if they were sleeping, how, how would they possibly know that it was the disciples that uh, stole his body? So the story actually creates more questions than it answers. But we should also consider this. God saved a man named Saul of Tarsus, who later became the Apostle Paul. Now, Saul of Tarsus, he hated Christians. He hated the church. He went uh, to far-off Gentile country to bring back Christians, to face trial in Jerusalem. And uh, then uh, he was actually responsible for the death of many Christians, right? He made them blaspheme, renounce their faith at the penalty of death. Right? But then on the road to Damascus, he had a vision of Jesus, right? And he ultimately is saved, right? And the crazy thing is, Paul, he was a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, many Bible scholars believe. And as a member of the Sanhedrin, he never would have trusted Jesus as his Savior if he knew the resurrection of Jesus was a lie, if he knew that it was a hoax. You know, Paul didn't say to Jesus when he saw him there on the road to Damascus, he didn't say, hey, wait a minute. I thought the disciples stole your body. That's not what he said. On the contrary, he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And if you'd like a more modern translation of what Paul says there in Acts 9, what he says is this, uncle, I give up. Here I am. Take me. I'm all yours. Think about it for a minute. The angels testify to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The soldiers testify to his um, resurrection. The disciples testify to his resurrection. The apostle Paul and every other changed life since then testifies to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that includes you and I because we've encountered the living Savior and our lives have been forever changed by him. The fifth reason, and I only have about 30 more to go, so just relax. No, I'm teasing, of course, right? The resurrection is cause for rejoicing because it provides us with victory over death, right? First Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the, from the dead. Guys, our hope is a living hope. It's a hope of living with him forever. You know what? And never forget, the biblical definition for hope is not, you know, I hope I get a bicycle for Christmas. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. No, the biblical definition of hope is the absolute assurance of good things to come. Jesus said in John 6, 47, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Well, guess what? Only he who has everlasting life can offer everlasting life to someone else, right? Only the one who has conquered death has everlasting life to give. Uh, you know, Gary, you know, Jimmy Jones down the street, he doesn't agree. Well, respectfully, I don't really care what Jimmy Jones thinks. You know, I'm sharing with you the truth of God's word right here found in the Bible, right? Six, and another reason to rejoice in the resurrection of Jesus is because it reveals his power over hell and his victory over hell and death. The apostle John writes in the book of Revelation, Revelation 1, 
17 through 18. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Right? Keys represent power and authority. The person with the keys has the power and authority to unlock and open doors and let out uh, what's behind them. 1 Corinthians 15, 55-57 says, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus took the two enemies of all mankind, death and hell, and reduced them down to keys on his keychain. Man, I love it. Seven, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is a cause of rejoicing because it provides us with a great high priest who sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Romans 8.34 Who is he who condemns? Is it as Christ who died and furthermore is also risen? Who is even at the right hand of God who always makes intercession for us? I mean, this is so comforting to me to know that our Savior ever lives to pray for us. You know what? He prayed yesterday for you and for me. You know what? He's praying right now for you and for me, right? He's going to be praying for us later today, tomorrow, and then the day after that, and the day after that. He never stops praying for us. And I'm sure you're just like me. We need his prayers because we fall so short. Uh, and, and the accuser of the brethren is accusing us before the Father constantly. Day and night, the Bible says he's accusing us. And Jesus intercedes for us, reminding the Father that it was for our shortcomings and our failures that he died. Number eight, and this actually is the last reason I'm going to list today. Uh, the resurrection is reason for rejoicing because it opens a door for us to come boldly into his presence at any time, to commune with him at any time, to present our petitions to him at any time, to just sit in his presence and worship him. Right? And believe me, just like any good father, he wants his kids to come to him, to sit in his presence and to receive from him. So the question is, are you taking advantage of that privilege? Verse 6, come, see the place where the Lord lay. Come and see is an invitation extended to everyone. It's actually, you know, I actually love the uh, come and sees in the Bible. Turn real quick with me to the Gospel of John. John chapter 1. It's a great study if you want to do it on your own. John chapter 1, again the next day, verse 35. John chapter 1, verse 35. Again the next day, John, speaking of John the Baptist, stood with two of his disciples. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, uh, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, uh, Where are you staying? And he said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. Whatever it is that you're seeking in life, whatever it is you're seeking from life, you know what? It's found in Jesus Christ. Drop down a, a little and look with me at John 1, 44 through 46. Now Philip was with Bethsaida, uh, from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? 
Philip said to him, come and see. Right? What Philip said to Nathaniel is what Jesus would say to each one of us. Come and see. Don't listen to, to others. Come and see for yourself. You know, come and see firsthand. Flip back now to Matthew 28, okay? We read in verse 6, Come see the place where the Lord lay. And verse 7, And go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead, and indeed he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. After seeing, we're to go and tell. We see it again in, in verse 10. Then Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So in verse 8, we read, So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. They ran with fear and great joy to bring word. You know, something that may escape your notice at first glance in this, in this uh, message of the resurrection it was first entrusted to women, right? It's an unlikely choice in that culture. Women were barred from giving any testimony in a legal proceeding because they were considered not to be a credible witness, right? Uh, the Bible says that God has given us the ministry of reconciliation, right? The message of Jesus is life, death, burial and resurrection, the forgiveness of sins that's being offered, the free gift of salvation, it's, has been, it's been entrusted to us. Unlikely choices. I mean, <laughs> think about it. Would you entrust such an important message like that to someone like me? To someone like you? <laughs> you know? God has entrusted us with his glory. Let's share the message. Let's run with fear and great joy, with reverence and great joy. Christ has paid the price for our sin, right? He is risen. He is alive. And he was raised for our justification. His resurrection is cause for rejoicing. And it should be our motivation to share him with other people. Believe me, you don't have to have it all together or have all the answers. You just have to be willing. And if you're willing, God will use you mightily. You know, one person said it like this. I'm just a beggar telling other beggars where to find bread. That's all it is. Just telling others where they can find the bread of life. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you so much for your word. And God, I do want to rejoice in your resurrection. I pray that God, there would be a rejoicing in our heart that would be stirred and it would bubble up. Lord, that we would rejoice that we have a faithful high priest, that we, we can rejoice that, that you've conquered sin and death and the grave and hell on our behalf. Lord, we can rejoice knowing that our sins are forgiven because you're an acceptable sacrifice, Lord. And we can rejoice with that and then allow that to be our motivation. Lord, I pray that you would work that in each of our hearts, Lord. God, work mightily in us. Work mightily in us, Lord, to spread the message of forgiveness of sin to our friends, our neighbors, and those people that we run into here in the town of Truckee, Lord. Be glorified in our midst, Lord. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.